0: Okay, good morning. Let's go ahead and get started. It's just a little bit after 9.30. And uh, we'll, we'll get ourselves rolling here this morning. So today, I'm going to talk about uh, the formation of the canon. You know, how the scriptures were formed. And I do have a very practical side to this, uh, because, you know, when we think about early Christian devotion and how we live our lives uh, as as Christ's people, uh, as we know, the scriptures are central. Um, and we have the prophets and the apostles, and, you know, we, as Lutherans, we have a basic understanding of, hey, these are the scriptures, these are the holy scriptures, but what I would like to talk about in moving in that direction today is to talk about how the canon was actually formed. Have you ever thought about that? Like, how did the Bible come to be? Yeah, you know? I mean, did it did it come leather-bound, <laughs> gilded edging, you know, nice ribbon markers, King James Version, Dropped right out of heaven, no, it was German first <laughs> yeah that 's right that 's right, so you know it 's interesting how it it took some time and the actual the ebb and flow of how it was understood you know we know very clearly that you have the prophets in the Old Testament and then the New Testament, you have the apostles and the evangelists and we know God spoke to the prophets and then the Lord spoke to the apostles, right? Jesus comes and he speaks and you have the Holy Spirit at work But it wasn't a nice, clean, bound book like this in the beginning. When you think about the Old Testament, for example, as I've said before, the first written scripture was the Ten Commandments. And so God wrote that, right? It says with the finger of God, he wrote the Ten Commandments. And so then... Moses followed suit in the Old Testament and before things were written it was oral oral transmission it's a very Jewish way of looking at it the way of approaching it and so with Adam and Eve for example way back in the beginning they followed the Lord's teaching which they received from direct communication with him and then Adam passed the teaching down to Cain and Abel and then to others and finally Abraham received the oral teaching and you know you can see this a little bit it's implied by the fact that all of a sudden Cain and Abel are in the picture and they're giving offerings sacrifices right and how did they learn that well they learned it from Adam and so you know it just sort of like goes along the books of Moses, then, was a testimony for the people. So he ends up writing, writing his books known as the Torah. And they were holy to the people as holy scripture. And so take a look at Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, 24 to 26. So you can see what Moses was thinking Deuteronomy thirty one twenty four to twenty six When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So there you see what he does with his Torah. He puts it by the side of the ark. And as I've explained before, it's like, like a receptacle attached to the outside of the ark. So it's put in there. So in the ark are the 10 Commandments, that which was written by the finger of God, that goes in. Then Moses Torah goes on the outside, but it's affixed. Okay. And so then the idea is the scriptures, God's testimony always leads the people. Whenever it stops, the people stop. When it goes, the people go, okay? And then the kings were to have a copy of the law. The books of Moses, also known as the Torah. So if you go back to Deuteronomy 17, and I do have a a practical story. I don't think I've told you this story yet. I hope I didn't tell you this story yet, but... Um, Deuteronomy seventeen, eighteen to 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law or Torah approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. If you just meditate upon those verses very closely, you get the sense of the importance of the Torah. It's meant to for the king and all those in the kingdom to learn to fear the Lord his God which fear in the old testament is sort of an equivalent to faith by keeping all the words of these lo- law of this law and doing them so it's it's as a remembrance it's instruction it's meant to lead them to the Lord right heart and mind and soul and life. And so, you know, this, today, as we look at the formation of the canon, we are thinking about what these scriptures are, how they were formed, and then how they lead us to live. And so our lives are informed by these scriptures, as we know. The people were to write the teachings on the doorposts, so go to uh, Deuteronomy 11:18 and 20. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the sw- Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. So then Moses' books were to be read to the people. So now go to Deuteronomy thirty-four, ten to 13. And this is the very end of of the writing. So speaking of Moses, I think I must have put the wrong chapter on there. But at any rate, this, so this says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So I guess it sort of shows the testimonies. Uh, They demonstrate how the Scripture is the norm of faith and life. It shows how the church is the pillar and ground of the truth because of them had been committed the oracles of God. And so then the church became the guardianship of Scripture. And when you think about the scriptures, then, if you turn to uh, Deuteronomy 31, let's take a quick look at that and then we'll turn the page on the handout. Deuteronomy 31, starting at verse 9, this is why God told Moses to write the Pentateuch or the Torah. So it starts out, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. But then let's jump down to verses 26 to 29 just to save a little time. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Whoops, that's the wrong one. Sorry, turned too many pages. All right, 26. Take this book of the law... And put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears And call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you, and in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. So the Word of God is there to lead and guide the people so they don't go astray, because, you know. I think I mentioned this before, but Athanasius talked about the soul and how the soul is always moving. The soul never is just like in this motionless position. And so Athanasius says that the soul will either move to the things of God or to the things of the flesh. And so the word of God is there to lead us so that we are led to the things of God. And so then scripture, of course, Leads us to baptism, right? Leads us to Eucharist. And, and then the life follows, yes.
1: You said that the uh, Moses books were to be read to the people. And you said that scripture reference was the one that you meant. Did you mean Deuteronomy
0: 31? Um, well, let's see. That's good. Okay, she asked, I had the wrong reference up there at Deuteronomy 34. And she was wondering if it, if it was Deuteronomy thirty-one, ten to thirteen. So let's take a look at that. Yeah, that's the feast of booths.
1: Well, yeah, but you should read the law. In the hearing,
0: yeah. yeah, and Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the feast of booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. I think maybe that's what it was, so thank you. So, do the
1: historians guess that the papyrus scrolls I mean, in that room
0: right yeah it was very costly so you know it was scrolls and then papyrus and so it was it was very expensive um and not easy you would
1: have had at least one scroll
0: for each of the first five I would think so cuz you can just imagine how long that is right you have to keep unrolling it and yeah and so you can see why Oral teaching was really important in those days because, you know, the Gutenberg Press came out in Luther's day. Um, So before that, it was oral communication and oral teaching, and that was primarily what it was. And so people were hearing learners. They would go to the temple and they would listen, and then they would learn it, and they would memorize it, and then they would share it and talk about it. Um, So... Turn the page of the handout, page two. So let's talk a little bit. That's just preparatory. That stuff in the Old Testament there with Moses is preparatory. Let's talk about the canon. And this is fun stuff. The canon means plumb line. So if, if, if there were a, uh, a carpenter in here, the carpenter would know plumb line. You know it has to be right, right? No, if it's got any curve to it, you know you're in, you're in big trouble, right, Carol? Okay. <laughs> and so it is it is uh, referred to as the rule of faith. Okay. So canon, being plumb line, then is rule of faith. So, what caused the canon to be formed? Because initially, the church, even the early earliest Christian church, did not have a defined canon like we know it today, and that's why I don't know if you've ever heard the other pastors talk about like the Shepherd of Hermas is a writing, um, early early Christians would often quote some of these other books. You know, they would quote the Shepherd of Hermas. They would maybe quote the Didache, you know, different things, because these books sounded like Scripture. Um, and, and so in the early days, some thought that the Shepherd of Hermas might have even been written by an apostle and been can, part of the canon or part of Scripture, But the way that the canon was actually formed was because of heretics and disagreements. And so there was one guy by the name of Marcion. And Marcion was sort of like a higher critic. And a higher critic is someone who looks at the scriptures from like a literary critical way, denies the miracles and then they sort of decide what's scripture and what isn't and they pick and choose. So Marcion was this early figure that he was picking and choosing what was scripture and what wasn't. And so he forced, he was one person that forced the church to make up its mind what to include in the Bible. Because Marcion's Bible is said to have been twofold, gospel and apostle with Galatians at its head. So what he did was he looked at the Old Testament as a different thing than the New Testament. And so he saw that he felt like the the God of the Old Testament was a hard judge but the God of the New Testament was different. And so what he did was he said in the New Testament, like in Luke's gospel, if there's Old Testament references in there, Marcion said that can't be part of scripture because that's a whole different thing, that Old Testament stuff. So he started to cut out scripture. Yes. When was this? Marcion, so this would have been like, late 100s, early into the 200s, I would think. And so it's very early, okay? And so the early church responded by annexing the whole New Testament, not as an independent collection, but making it part of the Christian Bible. And so against Marcion, the church was impelled to decide that it could not spare certain books from the scriptures. So He cut out a lot of Paul's writings, you know, Peter he wasn't too fond of, you know, he was cutting out different parts of the Gospels. There wasn't a lot left. There wasn't a lot left, and so they had to decide what to include in regards to Marcion, and so Marcion provided his followers with an edition of the Holy Scriptures to which he prefaced a series of what they co- what he called antitheses, setting out the incompatibility of law and gospel of the creator judge of the Old Testament and then the merciful father of the New Testament, who he said had nothing to do with creation or judgment. So the antitheses opened up with a lyrical celebration of divine grace which should arouse a sympathetic echo in every evangelical heart. So Marcion's gospel was Luke. He loved Luke, but he omitted the birth of John the Baptist. The birth of Jesus was omitted. Yeah, I know. It's, I know. It's like, well, and see, all this is going on within, within the Christian circles. Um. I don't know if he was a Gnostic in origin, but you could kind of see it. Well,
1: because, yeah, if he's coming out of Jesus' birth, then he's kind of got that, you know, flesh being sort of an icky thing
0: going on. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, there's a possibility of that. So Marcion liked Paul, but he left out the pastoral pis- epistles. All right, so that was Marcion. Then you had Montanus and some books had to be excluded then. So there was Montanus and there was Valentinus. So some books had to be excluded because of Montanus because the Montanists had their own prophecies. And so Montanus was asserting new and continuous revelations. And so, you know, that's a different kind of problem. So So think about it like this. And Valentinus was similar. Marcion was cutting out, so they had to figure out what to include. Montanus and Valentinus were including a lot of extra things they shouldn't, so they had to figure out what to limit, OK. And so with Valentinus, he was a contemporary of Marcion. He came from Alexandria and lived in Rome from 135 to 160 AD. He loved allegory, but his thinking developed along mystical and Gnostic lines. He broke with the church and became the founder of a Gnostic school, the Valentinians. And it is thought that the canon was largely fixed by the end of the second century. But the first list, and this is kind of amazing to me, the first list... Where scripture is said to be of the canon was in the 4th century in Athanasius' festal letter 39. So this shows you, the reason why I I, I tell you this is to show how central it was to the New Testament writers that the, the kerygma, the proclamation of Jesus Christ was what, formed and bound the church together, the kerygma. And if I can get to it in time, it will, I'll show you in the New Testament, some of Paul's statements that absolutely reflect this fact. Because if you think about it, like we, our society today is everything is written. Everything is so visual, I mean even down to social media now with texts, right? We have everything written for us. But the the early Christians it was oral at first, but centrally they looked at it differently. I mean even even like the the reading of the scriptures would have been in church, right? Cuz not everybody had a bible and so they would go to church to listen to the epistles and to listen to the gospels and you know it, so it, it it was very central for them so the Mur- Mur- muratorian canon is the earliest known list of books of the new testament regarded as authoritative and it's generally reckoned to come from the church of rome somewhere near the end of the 2nd century And so in the patristic period, the early church period, there were categories of scripture which were based on the frequency of citations. So I have them written here. There's homilagumina, antilagumina, and then notha. (laughs) Okay, homilagumina are the books that everybody agreed was totally scripture. There is no doubt. Antilagumina were disputed books that the church decided we do think that this is scripture, but you know, there's some dispute over it. And then the notha were books that they knew were not scripture, okay? And this is important even in Lutheran circles because like the formation of doctrine, the way it works is doctrine can only be formed if the teaching is in the Hama Legumina books, the unanimously accepted books you can't form a doctrine from a book that's only in the antilegomena category so like the book of James is antilegomena. it was disputed whether it was scripture or not by some and so if there's something in James but it's nowhere else you can't form doctrine based on just what's in James, does that make sense?
1: Um, there's a discrepancy between like the Catholic Bible and
0: like the, Like is that because of? Yeah, so, yes, exactly. And then there's the Apocrypha, right? And, and so Rome includes the Apocrypha, but we don't. And, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where you look at the period in which they were written. Uh, you look at who wrote them. And um, there's criteria for canonicity. Yes.
1: Even just reading them, uh, it's harder to find Christ in some of the stories. Yeah. I and mean, there's
0: some that are like, oh, I can see that. Yeah. Other ones, I don't know. I don't know. Exactly. Well, and so, like, then you have the uh, um, pseudepigrapha. Okay, so Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of St. Thomas the gospel of St. Peter. Um, Those things are pseudepigrapha, false writings. And the reason you know this is because, like in one of them, I want to say it's the gospel of Thomas. Um, There's like this story of the boyhood Jesus. And he gets mad at these kids and so he commands lightning to come down and pff, strike him dead. And you're like, yeah, that's not the Jesus I know. <laughs> right? And so you're like, that's not Scripture. So that's in the category of pseudepigrapha. Okay? I'll put it on here. And I know this, by the way, I realize this is like really heady stuff for 930 in the morning on a Friday. So in some ways I apologize, you know, um, but, you know, it's kind of an interesting topic because um, we're people of the book, right? Um, and not everybody is. So I don't know if I ever told you this story. <clears throat> if I did, tell me and I'll, I'll truncate it, okay? But did I ever tell you the story about my plane ride to Portland? I didn't tell you that story? Okay, good. So, you know, somewhere in here is is like all the making for a bad Lutheran joke or a, you know, bad religious joke because, so I get on the plane to go to Portland. I had a call to historic Zion in downtown Portland, which was like, what, a three or four four hour flight? I don't remember. Do you know how, how long flight that is out to the west, about that? Okay, yeah. And so anyway, I, I've got my ticket, right? So I'm going down the, the aisle on the plane, and I'm like, ah, I keep going back to the back, to the back, to the back, to the back. And they must have known I was a pastor somehow because they put me way in the back to not bother anybody. Yeah. And so I go back there, and it's a three-seated side, right? There's three seats, window seat, middle seat. And yeah. And so, so I'm, like, I'm like, oh. And I turn and I look at my aisle, And there was a bona fide Buddhist monk in an orange robe sitting there. And he was not the Hare Krishnas that are dancing around in the airports, you know. Um, This guy was an absolute Buddhist monk that lived out in the forests in the Far East. And he was a Caucasian like myself. And he was going back to see his parents in Portland. Isn't that funny? And so the Lord is merciful, though, because he was at the window seat, and there was nobody in the middle seat. (laughs) It was me on the aisle seat, empty seat, and then the Buddhist monk. And he and I talked the whole way. It was the most amazing conversation and I knew very little about Buddhism, and he knew next to nothing about Christianity. And the irony is, he grew, up, he grew up going to a Christian school. He knew nothing. I couldn't believe it. He knew nothing. And so we sat and we talked, and... I told him I was a Lutheran pastor, so I had to explain what a Lutheran was, you know. Um, But then he had a bottle of water in his white robe, or uh, uh, orange robe, and his head was completely shaved. And I talked to him about what his life was like. And he said that he lived out in the woods in somewhere in the Far East, and he lived in this hut by himself. And there were other monks scattered around. And they would walk into the city every day. And they would feed the poor. And then they would get fed with some of what was there too. And then they would go back and they spent most of their time in their huts by themselves. Can you imagine? Who's the type A's in here? Who's a type A? Yeah. <laughs> all right. You know, this—I mean, this would stretch even a, an introverted type B, right? Like this is really—but and I—I I asked him. I said, um, "What do you do in there? <laughs> what do you do in that hut all day every day?" And he said, "Well, I meditate." And I said, "Okay. So wh- what do you meditate upon? What what is it?" And he said, "Well." you know, I think about life and my life, and, and so I would, for example, meditate upon my breath. And I said, okay, tell me about that. And he said, well, you meditate upon your breath and you think about how your breath is fed by the world, by the trees and the plants, and then you breathe out and you feed the earth with your breath. And then you have the cycle of life, and it just goes. And he said, these are the things that I meditate upon. And I said, okay, but that's for like how long, right? Then what do you do? And, uh, and I said, um, do you pray? And he said, no, I don't really pray. I just meditate. And I said, okay. Um, I said, what, um, what is your goal? Uh, I said, do you believe in eternal life? And he said, no, that's not really important. What's really important is how we live here today, how we live on this earth, what we contribute. He said, you know, we don't really believe in an afterlife. So this is it.
1: So then what's, you're going to be okay. right, isolated the
0: whole... Yeah, like. Wow. Yeah. Wow is right. Yeah. Exactly. What are you contributing, right? Your breath? Come on. You know? And you're you're feeding people, but you know, that's like an hour a day, but and you're not really producing that to feed the people, right? You're just kinda of going on and helping out with some what somebody else produced and you know, so you're like, huh. And um I, so I asked him, I said, do you have, I think my first question was, do you have a prayer book? Because that's, I think, how it came up, like, do you pray? I said, do you have a prayer book? And he said, prayer book? I mean, he looked at me real puzzled, and he said, no, no, we don't have a prayer book. And I said, okay. And so I, he asked me then, he said, well, tell me about your religion and, and what you do. And... I said to him that we, I had a prayer book and I would go to church to an altar and we have scripture. And I, and I asked him, I said, you know, what is it that you use as your teaching? And he didn't really have an answer for me. And I said, our scriptures teach us, you know, they, they teach us the way of life. They teach us the way of God. They teach us about who God is and how God regards us. And so that's how he was sort of like, well, we, we're not really concerned about the afterlife. And I and I said to him, is, is, is that disturbing at all to you? And he said, no, not really. But, you know, when you look at that, and so we talked just the whole time, and I explained to him about, the scriptures and how they inform us and how, you know, we've learned about everything. You know, God is the creator, Jesus, the son of God, the redeemer and the Holy Spirit, the sanctifier. And we learn about baptism and we learn about the Eucharist and that's spiritual food, right? The body and blood of Christ. And, you know, and I was explaining all that stuff to him and it was so foreign to him. And as I reflected, I thought you can really see a big difference in someone who is spiritual, but does not have any divine writings that guide and therefore no understanding of God, right? God was not central to his existence at all. So, You know, the scriptures themselves lead us somewhere. And just practically, when we think about our lives of faith, a life of prayer, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but a life of prayer is not something different than a life of reading scripture. Both go together. And we understand this very well in the in our church here at St. John because when you hear the choir chant the Psalms or Peter singing the Psalm and, you know, as we sing and we then listen to Scripture, we have the liturgy, all of these things, all of it comes out of the Scriptures and our understanding of who God is. And so Scripture... A life of prayer and a life of scripture are meant to go together and we learn. We learn about God and we, and, and we learn how to talk to God and we also have a good understanding of how God deals with us, how he responds to us. So, um, and the interesting thing about it is that that guy, now this is kind of funny because he lived in a, you know, he lived in the woods in the Far East. But um, he did have an email address. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how that worked exactly. But um, but we exchanged emails. And we did keep in contact. Uh, we did email each other back and forth for, for a couple of years. And then he kind of dropped off. And I don't know what happened. But And it wasn't every day. It was like... I think he had to, like, trek somewhere, you know, where there is a central hub, and then he could shoot off a couple emails, and then he'd be gone for a couple months. But, you know, for us to think, it's so common to us, right, that we have a church with an altar, with the Holy Scriptures, and... These scriptures are so precious because who you are and what this church is, is defined by all that has come to pass to to bring us this. The thing I want to just emphasize is even though there were human elements to the forming of the canon, it's all god breathed scripture. It's divine. And it was disagreements and heresy that led the church to say, we have to make sure we know what is scripture. Because the thing with like the Montanists and the Valentinians is they loved to take in new revelations. So, you know... If Holly you know walked in one day and said, "I had a dream, and this is what it is, what it is, and this is what it says, and this is where we need to go, you know <clears throat> Valentinus or Montanus would be like that scripture, let's wrap that in with the rest of it, you know, and then Donna would come in and she'd say something, and well, that's the same thing let's include that too before you know it, it becomes a dangerous mess, so when we think about Canon. you have to think about that plumb line. What is the rule of faith? And this really is important for us because our creeds are established by the rule of faith. So just real quickly, if you look at page three, the criteria of canonicity, Paul saw the testimony to Christ as preeminent. So let's take a look at these scripture passages. So 1 Corinthians 12.3. We're going to start jumping around here. Gonna going to sing for us. 1 Corinthians 12.3. So it says... Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And then if you go to verse 10. Let's see. That's not right. Let's see here. Go to. Go back to... Go down to the bottom of the page. Go to 1 Corinthians two fourteen and 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. Okay, but there's a couple of verses I'd like to point out that deal specifically about the prom, the plumb line. So go to, uh, go to the last page of the handout and let's take a look at Galatians 6, 11, and following. Because there's a couple of verses that really are like, The canon and the plumb line. And in fact, this section even has the word canon in it, in the Greek. So let's take a look at it in the English. Galatians 6.11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted from the cross of, for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And look at verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule or canon, rule is canon, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So what he's doing what he's saying here is in verse 14, my boast is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the rule in verse 16 that, people, that the people are to walk by. And then go to 2 Corinthians 10. We're looking at verses 13 to 18. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And then I would say first, so there's a couple places. Romans sixteen twenty five. You don't have to go to that, but let me just read it. Real quick. Romans 16.25, which also talks, uses kerygma, says this. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was set, kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. So there you have this idea of it's the preaching of Jesus Christ, it's Paul's gospel, it's the mystery that has been kept secret, is now disclosed, okay, and to the whole nations. Now go to... First, boy, there's so much to look at. So first go to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 11, because that's shorter. So what I'm trying to, to show you here is to just give you the sense of how Paul saw that the canon was this proclamation. I guess that'd be my bullet point. What is canon to Paul? Canon is this proclamation about Jesus crucified, dead, buried, and risen. That's the canon to Paul. And from there, the scriptures, the New Testament is built around that canon, that proclamation. And so the early Christians, when they had to deal with the formation of the canon, they were looking at, do these books give us the Jesus that is God and man, crucified, died, buried, risen on the third day. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3-11. For I delivered to you Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So see how that works? He tells us right off the bat here in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he gives you the the canon that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then He appeared. Notice how He says Scriptures. I mean, the in I think He means the Old Testament. Because the New Testament hadn't really been written, you know. It was an oral thing to a large degree. So... This is important, too, for how you interpret the Old Testament. Do you see Jesus in the Old Testament? And so he's, he's giving it to us. This is, this is the rule of faith. And it's all about the passion of Jesus. And then everything is built around that. And so the creeds. This is why we confess the creeds in church. We come in and we confess the creeds because... This is the canon, right? The rule expressed and confessed. And this gives sense to the scriptures. So practically speaking, the creed is always somewhere in the liturgy, very close to the gospel and the sermon. That's by design. Because the confession of faith in the creed should give sense to the scriptures that you heard and the sermon that you heard. Does that make sense? So that's that's why it is like that. And let's see here. Um, 1 Timothy 3.16. And this in the Greek, and it's also like this in, the, in my English Bible, 1 Timothy 3.16. It's bracketed... It's um, the margins are different than the rest of the text. Is that so with with your versions? So that suggests that he is quoting from something else. So it starts in 1 Timothy 3.14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he gives it to you. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's like an early creed. So, you know, it's thought that even before he wrote 1 Timothy, that that might have been a part of a creedal confession that was written and confessed by the church because they knew it. And then if we go to, let's see here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. And while we do, does anybody have any questions? Yes. Yes. Follows the gospel of the sermon because it gives sense to
1: the gospel of the sermon? Is that correct? Right? Yep. Uh, can you make that clear
0: why it makes sense of the gospel of the Yeah. So, so the creed, so you you hear the gospels and you hear the sermon. Um, and you know, if you think about this, think about all the people in the world that have access to the bible and yet different church bodies have come to different conclusions about what it says right i mean you know if it's just open to subjective interpretation the scriptures could be meant to say a lot of things right i mean even down to the jehovah witnesses that say that jesus is not God from essence, right? He's created and then given some kind of divine sonship. Um, The scriptures could be misinterpreted. And so when when one hears the scriptures, the creed always follows to reinforce who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, that, and particularly the charygma that Jesus Christ is God and man who has come to redeem the world from sin. And it, what it does is it sort of is like a lens through which we hear the scriptures and through which we have access to the sermon. And I hope, does that make some sense? Okay. Alright. Any other question? Yeah.
1: Well kind of a, a comment. I mean it's it's kinda like what was said about the Apocrypha, right? You include the the passages in the Old Testament that are apocryphal, you include the, the apocryphal books, and scripture becomes less clear. Yeah. And the Jews in the in in looking at the Old Testament have the same things. I mean it's not it's not any different then than it is today. Right. You know, you had references to other books in the Old Testament that different animals of things. They're great. They're helpful. They're lost to history now, but I'm sure they were edifying at the time. They just weren't scripture. Yeah. You know? And so the church throughout the, the the generations have always looked for that clear scripture and. That stuff is great, it's just not scripture. And you have to have that, it has to ring true, you know. You get, you get the what is true. It has to ring true so that you don't wind up with a different Jesus. Yeah. So that if somebody walks into one of our churches today and all of a sudden you're getting a reading from the Pearl of Great Price, we're like, whoa, that's not scripture.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. It is very interesting and like, it's sort of like Pastor Nelson, when he teaches the kids, he has these special, like, look, they look like Elvis sunglasses to me. I don't, I don't know where he got those, but, you know, he, he has a cross on them and it's, uh, they're his Jesus goggles, you know? And so that's kind of the concept, like, what he's doing is he's saying, like, this is how we read scripture, it's it's what he's doing is he's giving a visual representation of how to look at canon. You know, what is the rule of faith? And the rule of faith is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin, suffered, died, rose on the third day, ascended into heaven. You know, and so this, if we read the scriptures in that way, so old... Who here has ever tried to read the Old Testament and said, man, I don't know, uh, I'm not really sure what that meant, right? I mean, it's, everybody's like that, you know, you're like, I don't know what this is, you know. But the, all of it drives you to Jesus. All of it drives you to Jesus. And so the idea is, you read the Old Testament in view of the rule of faith. What does this teach me about Jesus the Son of God, born of Mary, you know, and it's all over, you know, even down to like, I love Ash Wednesday and bless you. And, you know, that Ezekiel nine passage where the, you know, the the seventh angel comes with the pen and ink and and crosses the, the foreheads of all the people that are sighing and groaning, you know, what does that mean? Well, if you read it in light of Jesus and the New Testament, it starts to become clear. And so all of it sort of comes together. And this is the thing, like, as we read the scriptures together, it's amazing how they, how they are so together. You know, how scripture interprets scripture and all of that. It is an accusation
1: that Christians have chosen what gets put in the canon, and we didn't choose it. It's just that every Sunday or when they gather, they're reading the scriptures. So if somebody comes up and reads something different, then everybody there is going to go, wait a second, can we talk
0: about that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah and the, the the interesting thing and I'm I'm out of time so I'm going to have to I'm going to have to break but um down at the bottom uh I have tradition and I have some scripture passages listed and in those passages there is the language of I have given to you what you know what I have received right um I have given, you know, handed it over. Um, or the traditions you were taught. Um what he is boy, we could really talk about this some more next time. Um but you know what he's doing is he's showing the continuity from Jesus to him to the church. And what he's doing is he's taking the old testament rabbinical traditions and he is translating that into Jesus gives us the true tradition, the enduring tradition, and here it is. And what would be kind of fun, and what I've been thinking about doing, is maybe going through a short book of the New Testament, like maybe we would go through Colossians and start to look at some of this stuff in a little more detail and just sort of walk our way through a book, if you, if you all would be okay with that. And maybe we can do that. And um, it won't be a long book, because we'll be at it forever, but maybe like a short book. And I can start to give you Paul's sense. So this is sort of like ground break, you know, laying the groundwork, and then we can, we can kind of hone in a little bit more on Paul and just exactly how he thinks about the rule of faith. Okay? All right, so let's go ahead and close with the collect and the benediction. O Lord, mercifully hear our prayer and stretch forth the right hand of thy majesty to defend us from them that rise up against us. Through Jesus Christ, thy son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen.